Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director, PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. Big week this week. It's Can Week, so uh, we've been doing a lot of content around that, and we'll get into that a bit later, as well as a bunch of other stories about uh, the Olympics. Only a month away, we'll talk about Carl Nassib becoming the first active NFL player to come out. Talking about American Airlines flight cancellations due to staff shortages, which is a bit of a theme. So we'll dig into that. Juneteenth being established as a formal national holiday and some people moves as usual. There's a bunch of people moves around. So we'll just round those up with our guests, my usual joint host, Frank Washcook. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. A pleasure. And our special guest this week, Juliana Richter, who's the global CEO of Ogilvy PR. How are you doing, Juliana? And welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Steve. And I'm excited to be here with you and Frank. And before we get started, I just want to say congratulations to you for the Timothy White Award. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, we give out a lot of awards, so it was nice to win one. <laughs> for I bet. A- I bet it was. Well-deserved. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. So you've been in the role uh, Global CEO about six months, I think. And um Come to that for you know a fifteen year career at Edelman. Um, interesting time to start a new gig, especially a sort of high profile global one like that. So tell us about the first six months. How's it been for you? How have you spent the time? And, and you haven't you haven't really been able to do that sort of world tour that I guess a lot of uh, global CEOs would do. So what have, how have you uh, managed to get around that? Yeah, so I definitely haven't um, done the world tour quite yet in the way that maybe I would have imagined. Um, but it has been, you know, quite the whirlwind. I'll say that I, I started uh, officially in January when we were still very much in lockdown, as you know, and um, even down to uh, my interview process and meeting all the people that I would be working with and for, I didn't meet one of them in person. It was all, you know, via um, Zoom and video. And so you, it's interesting how you get to know people and, and really start to understand uh, through questions and through even, you know, mannerisms um, and intonations what people are really all about. Uh, but it, it's been wonderful and I think exciting, challenging for sure, um, requiring, you know, different ways to get to know people and communicate. I will say, though, I wouldn't uh, recommend this for the faint of heart. It, it definitely takes extra effort and focus and um, ways of really trying to make those connections, whether it's your team or even your clients. But I'm looking forward now to we're getting into that second half of the year and things are freeing up and I'm getting to finally meet people. So it, that part's been fantastic. Yeah, it does feel like we're opening up again. And uh, I know you've been traveling recently and um, people are getting on planes, aren't they, taking meetings and getting back to some sort of normality. And hopefully that will sustain. You never know what's around the corner. But uh, not only that, though, you've also moved offices. So Ogilvy was famously at the Chocolate Factory on 11th Avenue in Manhattan. And you've moved down to the Flatiron, near the Flatiron building, into the building, I think, that also houses Gray and Burson Co. That's right. And some of the other... 
WPP shop. So how have you managed that as well? How, that must have been an interesting process. I suppose in a way you're, everyone will have, be having a bit of a new start, not just you when you, when everyone does go back. It's it's funny you say that. That's very true. I mean, there's so there's something to you know be said about all coming together to a new environment, it, whether they people have been with the company or not. So I, I do feel like I'm you know in the same boat in that regard. It's wonderful. Um, I there's an energy in New York City and different parts of the city have a different energy, and I can say that as a native New Yorker. Uh, and the Flatiron I've always loved, and I, I feel is you know such a great creative, inspiring area to be just in general. So happy to be in that area, happy to be able to walk to work, um, which I have done now several times uh, over the Brooklyn Bridge from my home nice. in Dembo. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a wonderful, you know, it's a, you know, nice it's way to a little hot. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a great, you know, if it's not over 90 degrees, it's a great way to do that uh, and free your mind and, you know, do a call here and there. But I, yeah, so far so good. And it's a really welcoming space itself. I think that the company's put a lot of energy and effort into that. So that certainly helps. And uh, tell us about getting back to the office and how Ogilvy is uh, negotiating that, navigating that. Um, sounds like you're doing what a few trial people are going in, you know, sporadically at the moment. Is there a time after Labor Day maybe when you when it will be more formalized? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think probably like every company, agency or not, I think we're all looking at what is the right way for the company and the employee base, you know, to uh, reenter into the the work world in an office setting or a consistent office setting. Um, we right now there's a pod or pods of people that are voluntarily coming in. So, you know, I, I and I put my hand up immediately because, again, being new, that was, you know, an impetus for me. But also I just I like people and energy, I, I you know, I get from being around people and working with people. So for me, it was an easy decision. It's not for everyone. Uh, there's still certainly people who are not comfortable. And I think we recognize that. And so there isn't, you know, any plan to mandate everyone has to come back in. Um, there is a plan, again, like most companies that come September, they'll start to be a rotation based on the work you're doing and the teams you're a part of and that, you know, those details we're working through right now. But I do think it's safe to say we are absolutely keeping, you know, front and foremost, the flexibility and the mindset of flexibility uh, in, in accommodating people, because even though a pandemic, you know, might not be here in the same way and vaccines, thankfully, you know, have, have miraculously helped that doesn't mean everyone's life has gone back to normal necessarily um, or what was normal. And so we're really trying to be thoughtful about how we accommodate people from all walks of life with caregiving responsibilities and, you know, health uh, concerns. And we'll try different things and see what works. But I think there's a, a good amount of people that are excited to be back in some capacity. Yeah. Now, obviously, you've taken over an iconic name, the Ogilvy name, and it's been through different stages in the last few years in terms of strategy. Um, Andy Main has put his stamp on the company and part of it that was bringing you in. 
going back a little bit to the dis- discipline uh, structure, so Ogilvy PR is back and um, some of the other elements as well. So talk a little bit about that and how that's going to change from the sort of one Ogilvy structure that um, was was a, a big strategic play for three or four years. How's, uh, how are you going to implement that? It's good to see Ogilvy PR back, firstly, uh, from our point of view. And I'm not, I know it never went away, but it was like, it's like a more distinct structure now. So just talk us around that and the issues around that. Yeah, sure. Um, and it's great to hear that you think it's good. I certainly do as well. And um, and I think even, you know, our, our people and our clients feel the same way. And I don't think it ever went away. I think there was, as you know, you know, um, years ago with a, a different leadership team in place, there was a lot of thought given to, a, you know, an integrated, fully integrated offer uh, as one Ogilvy. And I think maybe the intent uh, and the spirit behind that was, you know, right. I, I don't know the execution was necessarily um, the right way to go. And so when Andy joined and, you know, took a fresh look at the business and said, we really do have distinct businesses within this storied brand of Ogilvy, you know, PR was certainly one of the ones that he cited. And that's when we started talking about how that vision of not returning, but you know, enhancing and strengthening based on what had worked before and, you know, recreating maybe what didn't and making that more future focused. And so the, the vision behind that is really having Ogilvy PR as its own business within the broader ecosystem of Ogilvy. So it's not its own company. Um, it's its own business and its own, uh, you know, intent and team that works independently as a PR firm. And quite frequently, that's the case, as well as, you know, much more integrated and in, at the intersection of the other parts of Ogilvy. And I think that there is a need for that. I think there is a desire for that. And I'm just happy and I feel very fortunate to be at the helm of being able to take that business to that next level. Yeah, now having been at an independent shop, Edelman, for many years, and you, you told me for uh, for the agency business report this year that you'd never seen the scale of opportunities that come through the door at a holding company. It's uh, you know it's just a different world. So, have you managed to take advantage of those opportunities in terms of uh, you know and getting a bunch of PR business in through through that? Yeah, I'm happy to say I have, um, and I, I am becoming a little bit more accustomed to the, the scale, um, hundreds of millions of dollars when you're talking about a holding company for a particular client. Again, that wasn't something I had seen necessarily at an independent, but it, it's there's some comfort in it because I understand also the way that a global piece of business um, and a global agency supporting that, whether it's one agency or several within a network, how that works. It's just a scale um, issue. So with that, that I'm very comfortable with. And we have been able to take, you know, I think uh, in a good way, advantage of some of the opportunities coming our way. There's more interest perhaps um, than there might have been, you know, during the pandemic and uh, in terms of what we're looking to do 
at Ogilvy broadly and then at Ogilvy PR. And that's opened the doors to a couple of the larger clients uh, that we're now working with. And I'm, I'm very excited and very proud of that. It's still, you know, very early days. Um, six months is not a, a long, long time in the grand scheme of things. But I think as I'm building out the team and as I'm restructuring and, and reimagining what I envision for Ogilvy PR, that's where I could see this only continuing to grow. And that's certainly the intent. When we spoke, you also mentioned you're actively looking at investments and acquisitions initially in North America. Can you give us an update on where you're, where you're at with that process? We're still very much in conversations with a couple of different companies right now. Uh, North America remains the focus, not the only area that we're looking at. We are looking at other regions as well. But I think that there's some areas in particular that I want to make sure that we um, are stronger and have deeper bench. And a lot of that does uh, sit in North America. So nothing I can give you breaking news on quite yet. Um, but certainly, I think very productive conversations that are continuing in the right direction. Okay. And you won Zippos in February, and I think you picked up Tata Consultancy Services. Can you give us any uh, exclusives on other business you've won or any other little tidbits? Oh, I wish I could. Um, <laughs> this is the fun of being a part of a, uh, a holding company. I think that there are also, you know, probably layers of rules and regulations um, that I'm just learning and getting used to in terms of what you can and cannot disclose. But that said, um, there are, I think, some things that we'll be able to talk about, you know, in the not too distant future when things get officially signed um, and underway. And I will say this, it's a, the wins that we've had are a good mix and a healthy mix of consumer, you know, social, digital, PR, um, which very much leaning more consumer all the way through to reputation, you know, uh, and public affairs. And, and that's, I like that, that, that makes me happy. That's a healthy blend of wins that we're having. I just want to see, you know, more of those um, and, and more frequent, but we'll share when we can. Okay, looking forward to that. And finally, just tell us what's on the agenda for the next six to nine months. What do you want to achieve? I assume the getting back in the office bit is a significant part of that. But what else? What are, what are your other objectives? Yeah, I think, I think the getting back in the office part along with the reset and the reimagination of the team. And one thing, you know, I, I did um, fairly quickly was start to identify the areas that I wanted to build out. And so in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've made some announcements that were you know, underway for the last couple of months uh, in terms of appointing people that will focus on areas of the Ogilvy PR business to help us achieve our aspiration of being the leading creative communications agency. And so two of those um, roles in particular, I think, that you kindly announced with us last week. One is appointing a global chief creative officer and a global chief strategy officer for the Ogilvy PR business. And it's not to say that we won't or don't tap into all of the other great creative and strategy brains and um, experts across Ogilvy, we do. But I think having that dedicated focus and specifically with two people um, who I would put up against anybody in terms of you know, more modern, definitely earned uh, first social driven creative having those as partners uh you know and really identifying the opportunities we're really excited about that and i think that that 
already I'm seeing that, you know, um, return on investment. So we're really happy about that. The other recent role that we've announced uh, is Matt Buchanan taking on a global consumer PR role. And that was, again, a strategic move. Matt did a brilliant job running uh, the business in our UK operation for PR. And this was a natural, I think, evolution for him. But for me, really looking at how do we make sure that we are looking holistically and globally and having someone who's, again, very sophisticated and you know, modern and visionary thinking in terms of how we're going to innovate for our consumer clients, that was critical. The next role we'll be announcing in the not too distant future is um, someone who will do that same approach at a global level, but on the corporate side. And, and then I think, you know, we'll have a really top talent, uh, senior, creative, driven, earned, centric team at the global level partnering with our region. So a lot of my energy has been you know, really looking at what is the team that I need to be able to succeed and that we as a company need. And I, I feel really good about where we are with that right now. Yeah, that was Charlotte Tanzel and Lisa Bright, wasn't it? Those That's two. Right. So, That's yeah, right. Okay, good stuff. We look forward to seeing how that plays out, and uh, we'll chat to you more when we come to discuss the topical issues this week. Frank, it's Can Week with a difference. It's all virtual. There's no rosé on the croisette and all that, although, as you constantly remind me, you've never been. But uh, um, I'm getting a, a taste for what it's like back at the ranch as well as kind of uh, – being there virtually so it's, it's been an interesting week hasn't it it has been an interesting week and um yeah i mean i i think it's fair to say there's probably maybe a little less buzz in the air this year about can just because you don't have all of those people in the same place at the same time and there's uh less gossip for sure right yeah you're missing the selfies from the yeah. <laughs> the Carlton Hotel and on the beach and all that. Good no stuff. shortage of those. No shortage of those most years. But uh, the most interesting part, I guess, for us is the PR Lions every year. And yeah. uh, it seems like every year we bemoan the fact that PR firms struggle to, to really make a big mark there. Although they, they do be- they're actually doing much better in the other categories. So just walk us through some of the, the uh, notable uh, themes and trends from the PR lines and the other uh, categories? Sure. I'll, I'll give you sort of the bad news first and then work into the good news. And that's that um, in the PR category, it was mostly the creative shops dominating again. And so there's been a lot of talk about why aren't the PR firms doing better and why aren't they winning the the big idea credits, you know, as the, the firm that comes up with the concept of the campaign and executes it, does the PR, the whole, the whole nine. So uh, the Grand Prix in the, and by the way, this is the annual debate about whether it's the Grand Prix or the, the Grand's Prix is back oh, again. And I, I checked that with Kevin Zetzman, our style guru, and he insists it's Grand Prix, Grand's Prix, because Prix is already a plural. But they, that's so. what I, that's what I thought too. Um, yes. Anyway, in the PR category, um, they were awarded to the bread exam, uh, which is a terrific campaign uh, by McCann, by McCann Paris for the Lebanese Breast Cancer Foundation and uh, contract for change by FCB Chicago and FCB New York for uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev's uh, Megalobe Ultra Pure Gold. 
Uh, Weber Shanwick was credited with handling PR for both of those winners. Now, again, here's the distinction. They weren't cre- credited as the uh, the idea agency behind those campaigns, but still as the PR agency working on those. But nonetheless, kudos to them. It's still, uh, it's still good stuff. Um, the only PR agencies credited for award-winning ideas were Heard MSL, LLYC, Current Global, uh, and Beach Mode and Action Russia. Uh, 67 lions were awarded across the Grand Prix, Gold, Silver, and Bronze PR lions. That's that's kind of the bad news is that the PR firms did not show up in the way they would have liked to uh, within their own category. But here's some good news. Uh, Edelman did win the idea Can Lion Grand Prix for uh, a campaign that it did for ASICs. Um, it's called the Eternal Run Campaign, sort of a new twist on on running and training where it's like a race that never ends. Um, and then, you know, kudos to them on that. That's It's a really good accomplishment. Anytime a PR firm wins in a, in a separate category, in any category, really, when it gets that idea trophy. So uh, this one was... We worked out whether they're the first PR firm to win a Grand Prix. That that has been a hot topic uh, of debate in in years past. Uh, I am not totally sure, but this year the the category they won in is the Entertainment Lions for Sport. Yeah, did that A six as a runner yourself? Did that uh, grab you? Did that get your attention? You no, know, it, it looked a little too taxing for me. Uh, <laughs> honestly, never ending race. <laughs> I was like, that's a bit daunting. Was uh, my first thoughts about it. Um, you know, you blogged about this yesterday. I think one thing that you, you brought up was that a lot of the campaigns that were winners, not just in the PR category, but but across the entire festival, I think a lot of us expected them to be much more COVID-focused uh, or much more racial justice-focused, just given everything that's happened in the past almost two years now. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, that really wasn't it. They were almost like uh, more normal year campaigns. Yeah, you could have been forgiven for not actually knowing COVID had happened, uh, watching right. the, the ceremonies and, and the programming. So it was, that was surprising. There was mm. there were some ideas with racial justice, but not as many as I thought. You know, if I compare it to the PR Week Awards, the Oscars of the industry, of course, um, I thought they, they reflected the year much better. And there were there were campaigns like uh, Edelman's Good Humor for the uh, Unilever ice cream brand and uh, Crayola. Uh, the crayons uh, effort, you know, both uh, in the racial justice area that uh, they were shortlisted, but they never got through. They didn't win any prizes. And I thought I was a little disappointed in that. Um, But, you know, maybe we're just navel gazing. I'd love to get your take on this, Juliana, because do we just navel gaze about this too much? And is it really about the work or, or do you think PR firms have a problem in getting those big idea credits? Because those are the ones that really matter, aren't they? And, um, you know, year after year, we, we, we get disappointed because we build our hopes up, but uh, it doesn't seem to happen. So I maybe have a different point of view on this because um, I think it does matter, but I think 
it's not about that one award. I, I really believe that. And I, I would say that, you know, regardless of what company or what, what pieces of work have won, it feels great, of course, you know, to get the Grand Prix. Um, but I think the fact that so much work is now including PR in it um, and that there's so many other non-PR agencies that are submitting for PR categories and that there's it, it's a scrum in so many of these cases. Um, so I, I don't I don't put so much weight, I think, maybe on did we or didn't we. It's, I see it more as are we contributing to great award winning work and is PR as a discipline being, you know, considered now it's great to see, you know, company like Edelman win ASICs. I think that's great for the entire industry. Um, but I also, you know, I think that there's tremendous work out there where PR played such a central role. It might not have been in, you know, the the list of the awards, but it was a critical piece. So I might look at it slightly differently. I don't think it's navel gazing. I just think it's a different focus. Yeah, for sure. I think. Um, but by the way, getting a PR credit is still a great achievement in one of these and uh, still to be celebrated. So I'm not downplaying that. And the PR firms do play. They're not just, uh, you know, promoting something that they, they do a lot more than that in, in most cases. But um uh, and PR firms don't have a monopoly on earned media, right? And that's sort sure. of, uh, I mean, at Ogilvy, that's probably, you know, one of the clearest uh, examples of a brand that, you know, uh, can, can with that. That was really what One Ogilvy was all about, wasn't it? Trying to trying to bring that mentality. Um, and I, I do think um, the, the PR firms do well in the other categories. It's just interesting. They actually do better in the non-PR categories, and I don't really know why. So, um, maybe it's down to the juries. Um, I do find it a bit odd that the can juries are only agency folks, so they don't have client yeah. people on the juries. That, that to me, one of the strengths of the PR Week Awards is it's 50% clients, right? And these are the people who, you know, they pay for these, this work and they, uh, they're the ones who, uh, who commission the agency. So I, I do think that gets a, excuse it a little bit, but, um, yeah. I, and, I totally agree with that. Yeah. The other thing with Ogilvy is, of course, we can't really – Ogilvy has achieved great and uh, a massive number of uh, awards this week, as it always does at Cannes, but it's difficult for us to identify which of the PR-led or own the media-led campaigns that you your business or part of the business has been involved in versus which of them are just uh, are other parts of Ogilvy. So we do, uh, uh, to be – Full disclosure, we do have a little bit of a problem assessing how Ogilvy PR is done in uh, Cannes. I don't know if there's anything we can do in the future to clarify that a bit. Uh, well, I think now, going back to the point earlier about establishing, you know, Ogilvy PR a little bit more um, formally as its own business, I think you can expect that we'll we'll pull that through in submissions. Uh, but I agree with you. I think if you're, you know, looking now back retrospectively over the last two years, it, there wasn't a call out necessarily for Ogilvy PR or Ogilvy Innovation or any other part. It was, you know, if Ogilvy or in some cases, David, if it was another, you know, um, sister agency, part of Ogilvy. But overall, I think, you know, we're really proud of how Ogilvy has done six Grand Prix and 11 golds and 16 silver. So great um, in that regard. And there were definitely a lot of the, you know, the great pieces of work that did win where PR did play a role, whether it was a lead role or a contributing role, it was a role that was critical and important, and it wasn't necessarily called out 
you know, in the categories um, or by name, but we're very proud of that. And I think that the work, interesting to hear you say earlier about, you know, not as much as it relates to the pandemic. I agree with that. I think there's probably, you know, part of all of us that want to move on a little bit um, yeah, after you know, such a right. hard. But one thing I did see, and I'm sure you you would agree with this, is, you know, the, the purpose and the values driven work that was there in spades, uh, you know, from from every agency. Uh, I, I think a lot of the work that was winning was very much around that, not just Dove, you know, the Courage is Beautiful campaign. Um, but there was so much other work there that was really purpose driven. And I think whether it was conscious or not, I think a lot of the juries were looking for that if they weren't looking for the pandemic specific work. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's brands moving beyond talking about purpose and actually doing activations that that result in change. And uh, certainly the winning, the Grand Prix uh, are two good examples of that, the contract for change from Michelob Ultra and the bread exam from Spinney's Flower, yeah, two excellent purposeful campaigns. So I totally agree with that. It's also wonderful to get that global perspective that you get from Cannes. You know, you see work from every part of the globe and some really creative work there. And it is, you know, it really is a celebration of creativity. And, and we're, PR Week will be doing, a, we'll be uh, pulling out 12 case studies of campaigns that particularly caught our eye because, but there are hundreds, you know, and if you're a, a student of creativity, it really does bear a, a lot of analysis. And, and that's really what it is all about. So, um, yeah, the last thing I'd say is that, you know, going back to the COVID thing, there, was, there, there wasn't a single um, campaign in the crisis PR category shortlisted, mm. which seemed crazy for me in the year that we've had, you know, that, and I just don't think that some of the best crisis work gets to play at Can. I just don't, I think it's a much more of a consumer, you know, marketing focused uh, awards. Um, but uh, yeah, always interesting and lots of great coverage and uh, we'll wrap that up. And you've, there's plenty of content from the chair of jury, Gail Hyman from Weber Shandwick and, uh, my blog and various other articles and there, there will be the analysis and case studies as well to come. So Steve, I, I hope when you talk about the global purview, I hope um, the, there was a great piece of work done. Uh, and I think it was the first time an agency in Pakistan uh, was That's running right. a Grand Prix. It was a great piece of work done by Ogilvy with Telenor. Uh, so I hope that's one of the ones that you're going to be looking at. Yeah, that that was very notable, wasn't it? And uh, good to see for sure. And there was there are PR firms that always do well at Cannes, you know, and and and, and did so again, like Current Global and uh, Alison Broad and Dini von Mufling, as well as the uh, you know the more established uh, Edelman's, Webers, uh, Ketchums, uh, BCWs. So um, good range. You don't have to be a massive global agency to to get your work um, honoured. In fact. Uh, the one gold line was Action Global Communications in Moscow. So uh, that was uh, a great achievement from them. So, yeah, lots of good stuff, lots to talk about, as always. Let's whip through the other points, uh, Frank, in this week's news. Carl Nassib, the first active NFL player to come out as gay. And that's that feels like a turning point for me. You know, how, how significant do you think it will be and uh, how, how important that is, is that? I think it's very significant. Um, I think that it's also very notable in the way that he announced it um, on Instagram um, in, in which he could thoroughly explain himself 
uh, via video and that he was pledging $100,000 to the, the Trevor project. Um, I, I think that also allows him to control the narrative a bit and uh, ask for privacy uh, from the media like he did. Um, I think it was, he, he handled this very expertly uh, in how he made the announcement. Um, I think it's pretty historic just in and of itself uh, in that he is the um, he is the first player on an NFL roster to to come out as gay. I think that you can you can kind of juxtapose it a bit um, with years ago when uh, Jason Collins, the professional basketball player, uh, came out as gay. Mm-hmm. He did it in a, a sort of a first person story with Sports Illustrated was the way that he made the announcement. And uh, you wondered, say, if he had Instagram available to him or if he had an Instagram account, maybe he would have gone this route uh, as well because you see how effective it was for Deceit. Yeah, um, a bit more control over the narrative. Yeah, yeah. So so wishing him luck and, and you know, wishing him a, a healthy year and a healthy season because, you know, what, what he did took a lot of guts. Um, it took a lot of courage and, uh, you know, I, I, it's good to see that a lot of players from around the league, uh, have been encouraging him and, and have been praising him for what he did. So yeah, good for him. I totally agree with you. And I hope that, uh, you know, when the crowds come back to sport, that there won't, there won't be abuse from the stands because frankly, that's one of the reasons why active players in any sport have refrained from doing this. Juliana, how significant do you think it is? And um, I, I, how about yeah, the messaging I, point, you know, in terms of the way it's the way the messaging is handled? I think, first of all, I agree with everything you just said, incredibly courageous. Um, and I think the impact of, of not just what he did, but the response that it's brought out, both from, you know, the his players, from the commissioner, from consumers. I, I just I think it's it's fantastic and it's wonderful to see. But I think how he did it. I agree with you. That's what, to me, you know, as a communications person, that's what's noteworthy. Not a press conference, not a sit down with Oprah, right? This was Instagram on a Monday afternoon in his backyard. And he could not have been more calm and normal in his delivery. And I think that, you know, there's some great lessons to, to take away from that in terms of looking at, you know, other announcements that probably down the road we'll see, you know, not necessarily the same topic or... Um, you know, sports related, but there, the normalcy of that was significant. And mm-hmm. I think that that was deliberate. And I think that that's going to help benefit people in ways that we don't even know yet. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, excellent point. Um, let's talk about the Tokyo Olympics, Frank. They are only one month away. There was the U.S. trials uh, last weekend, and uh, it's becoming real. But there's going to be, um, I think it's 50% capacity for, for fans. So what's, what's, what are you expecting, and is it is it going to be the big brand bonanza that it usually is? <laughs> well, brands are going to continue to sponsor it, but it is it is looking like it's certainly going to have a different vibe. Um in a headline today, the Associated Press called it the no fun Olympics. Uh, and that's just that's partially for the public, but also for all of the different hoops that the athletes uh, have to go through just to participate. And uh, an added twist to it this morning was that it's going to be a dry Olympics now. Uh, you will not be able to buy alcohol at any uh, Olympic venues 
despite a Japanese brewer being one of the main national sponsors. Um, now, all of the tests and all of the ways that they're trying to keep the Olympics COVID free is getting a, an, an early run now because a few members of Uganda's uh, Olympic delegation have, have tested positive for COVID-19. And so uh, all the processes that they've put into place, uh, they're getting sort of a test run now with how they respond to these positive cases. So, I, listen, I love the Olympics. I, I wish them well. I hope it I hope it goes off with, with minimal uh, disruption, but it will definitely be a different vibe with only uh, 50% capacity this time around. Yeah, and that Olympic Village, I mean, that is a hot mess waiting to happen. Is it a super spreader sort of environment, if ever there was one? So um, with thousands of uh, young people, uh, uh, you know, uh, enjoying themselves as well as training and participating seriously. So we'll see how that plays out. It was interesting this week where one of the, in the European Championships, one of the Scotland players was uh, tested positive after the England game and two of the England players had to miss the next game because they would, they'd shaken hands with him in the tunnel or something. So it's, uh, yeah. it is going to be really interesting. Juliana uh, Ogilvy has a massive business in Asia. What's, what are people thinking out there? How is it, uh, how is it compared to normal Olympics from the brand point of view and communications? Yeah, well, first, I, th I think the way it's handled um, is, is worth, you know, making mention of. I, I think that they took a calculated risk and the, the fact that they're basing this on the recommendations of medical experts, you know, that's that's the right thing to do. Um, they ultimately understand that there's a desire for a return to normalcy, but they have to be responsible in how they're doing it. And I think they're they're hoping for the best, but they are equally preparing for the worst. And I think they went as far as to say they're willing to change course, you know, if Tokyo is put back under a state of emergency. So again, they're being very responsible about it. And I, you know, I commend them for the way that they're handling it. I, I do think it will be different than any other Olympic games, you know, for all the reasons, including Frank, your, your uh, breaking news about um, a dry game such as adds one more, you know, bizarro element to, to this. But ultimately I think this is something that people are looking for. And uh, you know, for the 10,000 or whatever it is fans that they are allowing to, to join, you know, I, I'm sure that there are a lot of people clamoring for that opportunity um, because I do believe people want that sense of normalcy and they want to get back to that. So as long as it's done, you know, with caution and, and, you know, responsibility, I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah, honestly, I think the Olympics is one of the best things ever. It just brings the whole world together in a way yeah. that nothing else can, sport can. And if ever the world needed that at this moment, I think uh, it actually could be very timely. So um, I do think it's an opportunity for everyone to come together and, um, you know, pull in the same direction. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Um, let's quickly whip through the, the other stories, Frank. We're running a bit long. So the American Airlines flight cancellations due to staff shortages, that's a kind of a symptom of a record summer for people just quitting their jobs. You know, they've, uh, they've kind of reassessed their lives, haven't they? And they're like, yeah, I don't actually want to work. I'm going to take the summer off. Yeah, the, num the numbers are pretty staggering. So on Sunday, about 6% of the airline schedule or 190 flights were canceled, which is, is quite a, quite a bit and quite an inconvenience if you were going anywhere. Um, 
at Saturday, 4%. Uh, so, you know, those are big noticeable numbers and, and a bit of a mini crisis for the airline to begin with, because, you know, obviously a lot of people will be very upset about that sort of thing. Now, like you mentioned, that's uh, because of staff shortages. Um, and I, I think it's, it, there's a, it's, we're seeing right now, uh, the economy coming back is not like just flipping a switch on. Mm-hmm. There are all of these little things like this and the supply chain issues that we're having um, uh, and maybe even the inflation that we're seeing. You know, all of these little things are, are part of this restart, and it will be very interesting to see how they all work themselves out because it's unprecedented. It's an un- unprecedented situation. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. Um, we haven't really got time to get into it, but uh, we've talked about it before. It is a, is, is a crazy summer and um, people's priorities have changed. Yeah. So June, tell us about Juneteenth quickly, Frank. It's, it's now a formal national holiday, which uh, I think is a, is a good thing. But yeah, I think it's great. Didn't it? it was actually announced the day before. It, <laughs> it's actually... Right, because we 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 are so used to uh, our federal legislative branches operating so slowly that when they act really quickly on something, it would, it really it catches a lot of people by surprise, and it caught a lot of businesses by surprise about how, wondering, you know, should they give people the day off? Should they um, give them flex time? What should they do? Uh, so it's our newest federal holiday. Uh, I think it's terrific. It, it celebrates the uh, the end of slavery in the United States, which even if you were to remove all of the context uh, of the past year and well beyond, uh, is, is such a historic uh, moment with the end of the Civil War that it deserves a holiday in and of itself. So uh, glad to see it being recognized. Yeah. And finally, just quickly run us through the people moves this week. Yes. Uh, two excellent ones. Uh, there's a new chief communications officer at Kraft Heinz. Uh, one of the biggest food companies in the world, and it's Kathy Kranger. Um, The position's actually been upgraded a bit. She's going to be the CCO, uh, but she is replacing Michael Mullen, who is the head of global communications and corporate affairs, who is retiring uh, in August. So Kathy is going to report straight to the CEO, uh, Miguel Patricio. So uh, really important CCO role there. Uh, On the agency side, APCO Worldwide uh, has a new leader, uh, for its Midwestern team based in Chicago. That's Kelly Stepno. And the firm also promoted Jim Moorhead and Katie Milgram to new positions. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Juliana, for joining us. Great to chat and find out your plans for the future and wish you well with them. My pleasure. And thank you both for having me. It's an absolute, absolute pleasure. Great to, great to chat. A um, couple of announcements. PR Decoded is from October 12th to the 14th, and the Purpose Awards are on the 13th, so look out for that. Um, we've, we're showcasing our Pride in PR list all of, through June, and we'll be having a, a uh, panel event on the 30th of June, which is well worth tuning into, and it's our 40 Under 40 celebration on the 28th of October. But I just wanted to end with a little bit of sad news, I'm afraid, on the PR Week front. We heard earlier this week about the death of one of our former senior reporters, uh, Thomas Moore, who'd left us to go and work on the Hill back in February. And Thomas, you you will have known him from the podcasts, from reporting, covering the agency beat. Um, Many, many people reached out with their condolences. Thomas passed away suddenly earlier this week and uh, thrown us through a bit of a loop at PR Week, I must admit. And our sympathies to uh, Thomas's family and his friends, to everyone at the Hill, and um, just uh, remembering 
Tom because he was a great guy, real character, and uh, much much loved colleague. And um, we we uh, you know rest in peace, Thomas Frank. I don't know if you wanted to add a quick note. I, I would just add that I mean it's it's a tremendously difficult thing to hear the news about Thomas because. Um, you know, when you interacted with him on a daily basis, he was he, he was just so full of life and he had a lot of love for for music and and reporting and, you know, all the things you could banter with him about and talk to him about. Um, and, and he really will be missed. I mean, it's it's I, I can't overstate that enough. I think everybody on the team who worked with him will miss him. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And uh, we will miss you, Thomas. So rest in peace, friends. Um, that's all we've got time for. So we'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.